Hi, welcome to our Christ. Today I'm joined by Dr. Bernardo Castro. Bernardo is the executive director of Essentia Foundation. His work has been leading the modern renaissance of metaphysical idealism, really the notion that reality is essentially mental. He's a PhD in philosophy, focusing in areas like ontology, philosophy of mind, and another PhD actually in computer engineering, reconfigurable computing, artificial intelligence, and such things. So as a scientist, Bernardo has worked for the European Organization for Nuclear Research, CERN, and the Phillips Research Laboratories, where the Casimir effect of quantum field theory was discovered, and formulated in detail in many academic papers and books. His ideas have then been featured in the Scientific American, the Institute of Arts and Ideas, the blog of the American Philosophical Association, and Big Think, amongst others. So just to begin then, Bernardo, um, what first prompted your interest in the mind, even the cosmos, and some of those central concerns that we now see in your work? I think I, were, I was born interested in, in these things since I was a kid. Um, I asked myself these questions, you know, about identity, existence, and there was this phase of my life, I was around 12, that I started realizing that uh, I was me, I was not the world that I saw around me and how weird that whole thing was, that I wasn't the world. And then in university, it's sort of these questions went to the background. My first education is uh, computer science. And um, only the years later, um, I was still in my 20s, but I was working with AI. And of course, the question arises, if you can build a machine that is intelligent, what are you missing to make it also conscious? Mm-hmm. And that's what got me to more formally address these questions and uh, eventually come up with uh, some answers that are satisfying, at least to me. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And um, can you tell me a bit about the kind of story and how it formed that you developed a greater love for the kind of traditional spiritual riches and um, things that you've written about in books like More Than Allegory? Um, I think uh, religion and spiritual approaches to reality have gotten a very bad press since the European Enlightenment. Uh, that That is so because of essentially political reasons. Uh, early science was under death threat from the church. I mean, they did burn Bruno at the stake in the year 1600. <laughs> so science had a healthy fear of ecclesiastic authorities back then. Um, but uh, that that momentum gathered against religion um, stayed there, even when it no longer made much sense. It became a sort of a, an inertia in Western society. Um, and it's, uh, it's unfortunate because now it, uh, it makes us miss uh, an incredibly rich and important part of our heritage. Um, and I think that's a tragedy. And um, I want to ask you a little bit about influences then, Bernardo. Are there any particular persons who spring to mind who've been especially inspirational or influential in your life? Carl Jung has been very influential and inspiration for me since I was a teenager. Um, Several years ago, I was already a young adult. Um, One specific paper by David Chalmers was very influential in me. For me, um, one in which he framed the so-called hard problem of consciousness very unambiguously and very succinctly. He basically said there is nothing about physical parameters in terms of which we could deduce the qualities of experience, at least in principle. And that landed like a bomb when I was thinking about, you know, the relationship between AI and artificial consciousness when I read that. 
I realized that uh, that's the reason why all my efforts led nowhere. I mean, whatever I changed about structure and function in a computer, I had no less or more reason to think that experience would accompany the, accompany the data processing in that computer. And Dave's paper made it clear to me that these two domains, the domain of the qualities of experience and the domain of the quantities that fully characterize physical parameters, they are incommensurable. And that trying to unite them is internally contradictory, it's incoherent, and therefore we have to take several steps back regarding our assumptions about the nature of reality uh, in order to figure out where did we take a wrong turn that has led us to an internal contradiction and that's what i tried to do after that excellent and um i want to ask you a little bit more about young then if i may so you've written a wonderful book about young decoding young's metaphysics the archetypal semantics of an experiential universe so just first of all then what is it about him in particular that you consider most vital and maybe what are some of the key themes or ideas that you find most worthwhile? Well, um, he gave me a picture of how the mind behaves that um, for some reason, even from my very young 14 year old self made all kinds of sense. It resonated like something that is self-evidently true and that you didn't know it was because nobody said that to you until somebody comes and says it and you go like, of course, that's absolutely true. And some of the key ideas uh, for me in Jung's work were the idea of the archetypes, the notion that minds tend to behave according to certain natural templates of behavior, um, that the behavior of mind is not random or always entirely original. Uh, it's not arbitrary. It, it, it follows, um, you could call it instinctive patterns that are universal and that uh, unites, uh, unite us all. Uh, we all express those universal archetypes in different ways, in our own, our own peculiar fashion, but the archetypes are universal and transpersonal. And also the notion of a collective so-called unconscious. It's not unconscious according to the modern understanding of the word. It, it, it should be called the collective unmetaconscious. <laughs> that would be more correctly <laughs> correctly stated. But uh, this idea that uh, there is a very deep layer of our own minds, um, which we share with everybody else, perhaps all living beings, that a very, very deep level, uh, we are actually one. We are not completely separate from one another. It seems that we are separate because at this metacognitive level of our daily you know, normal state of consciousness, which is focused on immediate you know, threats from the environment and how you have to react to environmental challenges where the attention is focused and where metaconsciousness or metacognition is focused. That's a very tiny, tiny bit of mind. Mind uh, uh, goes much deeper than that and much wider than that. So wide that if you go deep enough, there is no distinction between you and me. Mm. And um, what then did you hope to add to the conversation with your book on top of the things that have been written about Jung um, since he was about then? Well, clarity and, and, and hopefully correct some very clear misrepresentations of Jung's ideas. People still sell the idea, famous Jungians still sell this idea that uh, the collective unconscious, unconsciousness of Jung um, uh, means our genetic inheritance. 
that's complete nonsense that contradicts uh, a bunch of things uh, Jung said about the collective unconscious, like the notion that even matter itself, the inanimate uni universe, that too uh, is founded on the collective unconscious. He said that explicitly more than once. So this, this talk that you know the collective unconscious is just our genetic inheritance is absolutely nonsense for anyone who just took the time to read uh, what Jung had to say about these things. That was one motivation. And the other one was, well, there were many, but the, the, these are the two important ones. The second one was uh, my, uh, an effort I made to clarify that what Jung meant by the unconscious is not what we would mean by something that lacks consciousness today. Today, when we say consciousness, philosophers usually mean phenomenal consciousness, raw experience. If there is something it is like to be you, then you are conscious. You don't need to have higher level mental functions to be conscious. You don't need to be self-aware, self-reflective, meta metacognitive. None of that is needed. So long as you have raw experience, you are conscious. And when Jung talked about the unconscious, what he meant to negate was not phenomenal consciousness. He meant to negate higher level mental functions associated with consciousness, like self-awareness or, or explicit uh, um, cognitive associations between different mental contents, the ability to not only experience, but to be able to uh, report on your experiences to your therapist. Because there are many things we experience, but we don't know that we experience them because we lack this metaconsciousness, the ability to not only experience something, but to know that we are experiencing that, uh, that thing. That's metaconsciousness. And that's what, that's what the unconscious does not have. Uh, but the unconscious is experiential in nature, just like consciousness. And uh, Jung was clear in that regard. If you actually read what he had to say when, when, he, when he elaborated on what he meant, as opposed to sticking to the meaning of a word that was different back in the late, late 19th century than it is today. Mm. Excellent. Thank you, Bernardo. And uh, so I'd love to look some more at your specific networks and things you've touched upon over the years. So I'll focus my questions mainly around why materialism is baloney, how true skeptics know there's no death and father answers to life, the universe and everything. And then um, I'm going to sort of delve into the themes that have, you've built upon over the years since that book. So you, you began that book by laying out a kind of action what has become the against what's become the dominant worldview which is naming materialism can you describe uh, what that means in this kind of double senses you seem to make a, a reasonable link i think between the philosophy of materialism and then the more egotistical consumerist materialism that uh, many of us are familiar okay so one is metaphysical materialism it's a metaphysical position it states that what the world the universe is really made of is of a substance that is outside and independent of mentation, of experience. Uh, and we colloquially call that substance matter or physicality or physical entities. So that's, that's metaphysical materialism, that what really exists is not our minds. Our minds are a byproduct, a side effect, an epiphenomenon of, of certain physical arrangements in the form of uh, metabolizing uh, brains. Uh, what really exists is something that is not mental, and that's matter. So that's metaphysical uh, materialism. And then there is, of course, ethical materialism, which is the notion that what is worth uh, in life is the accumulation of material stuff. Now, um, strictly speaking, these are completely different and independent positions. 
um, you can be a, a metaphysical materialist without being an ethical materialist and the other way around. But in practice, of course, if your metaphysical outlook on life is that the only thing that really exists is this matter stuff that is outside mind and mind is something that comes and goes and passes and all of your insights, everything you learned at great cost from all the suffering you went through in your life, all of that will be lost the moment you die because that's mental stuff and mental stuff disappears the moment matter disorganizes and no longer creates that mental stuff. So if you are an, 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 an adherent to metaphysical materialism, then of course, you know, the only conceivable purpose for life is to accumulate material things because these are the only things that really exist to accumulate love and insight and learning and maturity and compassion. Uh, you're going to lose all of that guaranteed the moment you die. If that's what you believe, then of course, the only game in town is to accumulate material things. Moreover, you're not going to be around in a hundred years. So who cares if you just, you know, exploit the planet to the point that future generations will not be able to have a decent life if they exist at all who cares you're not going to be around your mind is will, will, will be gone you might as well plunder it while you can mm -hmm. excellent thanks Bernardo and um, the only other sort of well one of the other main alternatives that I suppose from within their perspective that they might suggest would be to um immortalize themselves through say institutions or something which seems to be what Ernest Becker critiques in his idea of the kind of denial of death that they're so afraid to die that then attach themselves to these institutions and oh, would, would you have anything to say to that kind of um, approach that's a well-known psychological phenomenon look throughout human history 99 percent of it, um, it we derived meaning from transcendence we derive meaning from the notion that you know before we were, we were born and after we die there is something that is not immediately apprehensible in this mode of consciousness that we call life and and that transcendent space is where meaning is rooted whatever we do here um, has as ultimate purpose or significance to bring something back to transcendent space or something like this so that has been the notion throughout the vast majority of human history but um, after the European Enlightenment, and especially in the mid-19th century, mid to late 19th century, when Nietzsche uh, declared the death of God, which was not something he wanted, but he observed that that's where culture was going, and of course he was right, uh, we've lost uh, uh, this notion of meaning from transcendence, because we've killed God. We, we no longer believe in transcendence. So where does meaning come from we are meaning seeking creatures we cannot have life um, without a source of meaning and psychology has has discovered and documented very well this phenomenon called uh, fluid compensation which is when you lose one source of meaning your psychology will automatically uh, compensate for it uh, by investing something else with meaning finding another source of meaning and Many of these sources are known. Uh, one you mentioned, if you participate in something bigger than you, which will survive your existence, will be here after you are no longer around, then you derive meaning from that, like participating in the cosmological project of Western science, 
um, what you contribute to that will survive you. That's one source of meaning compensation or, or fluid compensation. There are others. Um, closure is a big one. Even if this whole thing is a meaningless, uh, you know, cruel, meaningless game, um, at least if we understand it and understand that it is so, we get one up on it. We derive meaning from closure. Uh, at the end, we're going to die and it will all be for nothing anyway. That's what we think. But at least we understood it. And that gives us a sense of, you know, fluidly compensated meaning. Um, uh, having a, a very highly positive opinion about oneself, self-affirmation is another source of meaning that we sort of manufacture when psychologically when we lose the only true source of meaning of course which is transcendence but uh, when we lost that when the intellectual elites in the west lost that they had to fluid compensate and we see that happening still today um, fluid compensation has been the psychological drive be the, behind the new neo atheist movement uh, in at, at the turn of the century uh, when we had people who derived meaning from uh, putting themselves up as the tough people who acknowledge the tough facts of reality and putting everybody else down, like all the religious people. They're idiots. They, you know, uh, they, they, they are not worth it. They are, they are clowns. Uh, and you see that very much. You know, Richard Dawkins is a prime example of that. Um, that's meaning compensation in action. It's someone who believes that, well, this is all for nothing anyway, but at least I am the one tough enough to face the bleak facts. And those other gullible, uh, wish-fulfilling people, uh, they are entertaining their little fairy tales uh, to feel better about life. It's the psychology, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's how it works. Yeah, and it seems to be that um, Dr. Bill Kavanaugh has an interesting sort of thesis that this scales, as it were, societally, and that we organize our societies around uh, what he calls the kind of migration of the holy, whereby, as you say, from the religious say to, to now, the holy, holy is migrated or transcendence kind of migrated to the market and to the state. And we tend to imbue those with these transcendent kind of, um, uh, this transcendent significance, even though we kind of make it imminent, I suppose, to ourselves at the same time. Um, so I want to ask, I want to move on next, if I may, Bernardo, to the relationship between the mind and the body, which I think you make really clear. And many of us, I think, take for granted, but I think as you show, uh, we've got a kind of upside down in many ways. So I just want to ask, can you describe perhaps your idealist understanding and how that contrasts with the dominant materialist sort of paradigm and um, how in some ways that actually subverts the kind of common idea that it's as if materialism is actually somewhat more earthy and it, reality is just there, whereas I think you show that it's, it's a decidedly more <laughs> complex picture than that. Yeah, it's precisely the opposite. <laughs> materialism is really far out. <laughs> um, okay, under materialism, the mind is generated by the brain. If the brain loses its structural or dynamical integrity, then the mind disappears because the mind is generated by the brain just like light is generated by a li light bulb. If the light bulb burns, there is no light. Um, and um, what really is out there is not something that you can even visualize. It's something that is exhaustively describable through quantities, numbers, like kilograms, uh, hertz, uh, uh, um, and all the other physical quantities, spin, charge, 
momentum, geometrical relationships, angles, distances, and so on and so forth. Um, but you can't visualize that because it has no qualities. It doesn't have a color. It doesn't have a flavor. It doesn't have texture. It's purely abstract. It's something describable through a mathematical equation, but you cannot visualize it beyond that. And qualities are supposed then to be generated by our brain inside our skull. So the world of qualities, of colors, of melodies, of flavors uh, and, and smells that you experience around you is actually, according to materialism, uh, inside your head. The inner surface of your skull is beyond the stars you actually see in the night sky. Because the stars you see are qualitative things. They are shiny. They are white against a black or dark blue background. And, and all those qualities under materialism are not out there. They are inside your skull. So your skull, the inner surface of your skull is above the moon you see at night. There is a moon outside your skull, according to materialism, but it's not your experience of the moon. There is an abstract object beyond your skull that you cannot be acquainted with directly. You cannot even visualize it because visualization immediately entails qualities and that object which is really out there has no qualities. It's just geometrical relationships and you know, mathematical equations floating in the vacuum of space. So the moon you actually see is below the inner surface of your skull. The world is in your head. The world you experience is in your head. The supposedly real world that is out there is not something you can experience directly. That's materialism. Um, and of course, the, there are, there are at least five reasons why this is wrong, each one of them sufficient to, to completely debunk materialism. Um, idealism, on the other hand, is the notion that uh, it's not your mind that is inside your head. It's your head that is in your mind. It's the other way around. Or to speak religious language, the soul is not in the body. It's the body that is in the soul. Um, under idealism, analytic idealism, which was what I put forward, the body, including the brain, the living brain, the metabolizing body, is what a certain configuration of consciousness looks like. And that's why uh, brain activity correlates with experience. It's because brain activity is what experience looks like when observed from the outside, or technically from across a dissociative boundary. Um, so your mind is not in your body. Your body is a representation of your mind, a cognitive representation of the state of your mind. Uh, therefore, your mind is not inside your body. The moon you see is not inside your body. The moon you see is in your mind, but so is your body. Your body and the moon, they are both in your mind. Your head is inside your mind because your head is a cognitive, qualitative representation of your own mental state. Uh, and, and it seems like it's a very difficult idea to wrap your head around, but it's incredibly sensible and intuitive once you really get it. Mm, excellent. I agree. Thank you, Bernardo. And uh, you also described the hard problem of consciousness, which people may know at a popular level, but not really know what it's about. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that and how you describe it in the book and how that is, why that's significant? Well, it, metaphysical materialism 
states categorically that the mind is an epiphenomenon of the brain. In other words, it is brain activity that somehow generates or even is the mind. There are materialists out there who go as far as to say that consciousness doesn't exist. It's just brain activity. Uh, I mean, or consciousness is an, is an illusion, which is it's probably the stupidest thought ever conceived by the human mind in the whole history of thought. Because, of course, an illusion is an experience in consciousness. <laughs> so you cannot say that consciousness doesn't exist because it's an illusion, because if there is an illusion, then, of course, consciousness must exist <laughs> in order for there to be an illusion. Um, <clears throat> so if that's the postulate that the mind is somehow generated by the brain, then for this idea to hold any water, someone at some point will have to articulate how is it, at least in principle, that if, uh, um, electrochemical activity in our synapses, um, which is something describable through physical parameters, generates the feeling of falling in love or being disappointed, or smelling coffee, or biting into an apple. Um, there is, and that's the hard problem, as it turns out, there is nothing about the physical parameters that can describe brain activity in terms of which we could deduce in some more or less natural and logical way the qualities of experience. Like if you have this pattern of brain activity, then we can deduce that you should be feeling hunger, feeling hungry. Um, but there isn't such a link. Uh, the link is merely empirical in the sense that we measure your brain activity when you are hungry and we know the correlation between the two. But there is no in principle natural way to deduce one from the other other than to just measure and see what the correlation is. And notice that this is not the case for literally everything else in science. Um, when we discovered the Higgs boson at CERN uh, 10 years ago, uh, we had a complete elaboration of how and why the Higgs boson and its associated Higgs field creates mass, makes things have mass and not fly at the speed of light all the time. We had a, a chain of deduction that allowed us to very naturally come from here is the Higgs boson, to it's difficult to get a train to move. And, and that chain of deduction existed before we even measured the Higgs boson, before we even found a Higgs boson, we never measured the Higgs boson directly, but before we even found the footprints of the Higgs boson, there was a natural chain of deduction. You cannot have this natural chain of deduction from brain activity to mental states, qualitative states. These two domains are completely incommensurable. Uh, the, 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 the link between the two is arbitrary. You have to measure them to see what the link is. There is no way to deduce that uh, or, or to logically infer one from the other. And the reason is that uh, we mistake the, the map for the territory. Um, these numbers that characterize physical entities, they are descriptions of the world of qualities we see around us. And at some point, and that's a very weird thing in the history of Western thought, at some point we decided that the description of the world was the world. And that these qualities we see around us somehow were a product of the description. It's like you look at the world and you draw a map of it. The map is a description of the world. Mm -hmm. And then weirdly you say, the map is the actual world. 
and somehow the map generates the world. And then we try to pull the world out of the map and we fail and then we call it a problem, the hard problem of consciousness. And we promise ourselves that in version two or three or 100 of the map, we will be able to pull the territory out of the map. It's a matter of making a better map. And then you will be able to pull the territory out of it. And of course, this is ludicrously stupid. Um, it, and, and, it, and unfortunately, it is the stupidity at the foundation of Western metaphysical thought still today. Thank you for that, Bernardo. And um, I think that you, ex you kind of communicated a gift that I think you have to explain these difficult concepts using wonderful metaphors and analogies and you, that comes across in your written work too so you, you use one of the whirlpool which i found very helpful and in, in that early book can you tell us a bit about that and again how that shows how our individual minds relate to the unconscious and how that suggests that we are actually related as you described yeah okay so let me start with the actual problem that um, motivated uh, that um, there are mainly, mainly three uh, metaphysical alternatives today that are discussed. One is materialism, and that is uh, particular organizations of matter somehow generate mind or experience or consciousness. The other is panpsychism. Matter doesn't generate consciousness. Matter really exists. It has standalone existence, and consciousness is one of its properties. Like matter has mass, has charge, electric charge, has uh, angular momentum or spin. Oh, and it has experiential states or consciousness. And the problem with that one is how do you get from the little consciousnesses of all the subatomic particles that constitute your brain to your unitary conscious inner life? You don't have gazillions of little conscious inner lives, each one corresponding to an elementary particle in your brain. You are you. So the problem of going from all these little separate subjectivities to your unitary inner life is called the combination problem. And it is as hard as the hard problem of consciousness. In other words, it's incoherent. It's not a problem. It's an internal contradiction of a wrong line of thinking. You cannot um, uh, articulate coherently any way in which fundamentally separate fields of experience to, could, could combine to form a unitary higher level field of experience. It's incoherent to even try to do that. Which leaves us with, with the third alternative, which is instead of matter generating consciousness or the consciousnesses of little bits of matter combining to form higher level consciousnesses, we start with the whole. We say the universe is one consciousness. That's the way we have to avoid the problem of the other two approaches, which are incoherent. They are not problems, they, they, they are insoluble. Um, so to avoid that, we say, let's start from the whole. Let's start from a holistic approach. The universe is one mind and matter is what the mental activity of that one mind looks like from a certain perspective, a dissociative perspective. That's the technical part of it. Um, but then, if that's your starting point, you have to account for how come I can't read your thoughts? How come I don't know what's happening in China or in the galaxy of Andromeda right now? Because if it's all one universal mind, I should know all these things. No, I'm part of that mind and it's one mind. Therefore, I should know everything that's going on in that one mind, but I don't. So what's happening? That is what is called the decomposition problem. 
um, how do you account for separate minds if you start from one universal mind? And the way we can account for that technically is this is dissociation, but the metaphor is the metaphor of whirlpools in a river. Um, if there is a whirlpool in a river, you can point at it and you can say, there, that's a whirlpool. You can trace the boundaries of the whirlpool. You know exactly where the whirlpool ends, which part of the river is no longer part of the whirlpool. But notice that although you can identify it as an individual entity with clearly demarcated boundaries, there is nothing to the whirlpool but the river. You, you can't go and lift the whirlpool out of the river. The whirlpool is just the river. It's a pattern of behavior, a pattern of movement of the river. There is nothing to it but the river. Uh, other metaphors are there is nothing to a guitar string that plays a note other than the guitar string itself. There's nothing to a dance, a choreography, but the dancer. When the dancer moves, you get the dance, but there's nothing to the dance but the dancer. In the same way, there's nothing to the whirlpool but the river. The whirlpool is a dance of the river, but it's a dance that is such that you can demarcate a subset of the river and you say, here is the whirlpool. And here the whirlpool ends. It's an individual within that whole. And that's a metaphor for our minds. Just as the whirlpool is a pattern, an identifiable pattern of localization of water in the river, water that instead of flowing through, keeps on turning around a certain point, our mental inner lives are a pattern of localization of the universal stream of mind. And that pattern of localization that we call our lives, our conscious inner lives, has an appearance. You can delineate its boundaries. It's the boundaries of the body. And you can say here the body ends, just like you can say here the whirlpool ends. But we cannot be lifted out of the universal mind in exactly the same sense that you cannot lift the whirlpool out of the river. Our minds are just a universal mind doing a dance of localization that seems to become individuated, just like a whirlpool seems to be individuated. It's a thing. You can point at it and say, there, there's the whirlpool. Here are the boundaries of the whirlpool. You can point at each, we can point at each other and say, there he is. Or you can point at, your, point at yourself and say, here I am. These are the boundaries of my mind. If I squeeze my skin here, I feel it. It's part of me. If I squeeze my, my cat's uh, uh, mattress here, I don't <laughs> feel it. So that's not my mind. And the same thing for the whirlpool. You can, you, can, you, you can tell where it ends. And yet there is nothing to it but the river in the same way that there is nothing to our seemingly individuated conscious in their lives. But universal consciousness, dancing this dance of localization that one day comes to an end. Mm -hmm. And um, I want to take it in a slightly different direction next, if I may, if you're comfortable with this, Bernardo. So I just want to ask you, so from an Orthodox Christian perspective, I find much in your work that I agree with and um, a lot more helpful and closer to our hearts than and minds than um, kind of dominant materialism and how that's sort of manifested and you used kind of more traditional terms at times drawn from Sanatan Dharma referring to Brahman and Maya and things like that I'm just wondering a uh, 
what you described describe as mind we might understand as God from a, within a theistic sort of context a are there any kind of theistic pan, panentheistic or other terms like that that you think are closest to what you're describing or do you not like to bracket in those terms and maybe uh, would that just close people off to your ideas or what would be the motivation there well uh, it's not really closing people off it's just that um it's a matter of being unambiguous. Um, there probably are seven and a half billion definitions of God uh, out there. So if I use the word, I, I don't know what people will be understanding me to be saying, and it's probably not what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. So I try to avoid that. So I try to use more, you know, slightly more precise terms. Um, but I don't have anything against uh, against the obvious association between what I'm calling universal consciousness and, and the image of a divinity. Uh, that, that you go from A to B in a very natural way here. Um, and, and it's very, very self-evident. Um, and if you go into scripture, there are hints all over the place. Um, the, the, when, when the parakeet, the, the Holy Spirit descended to every man, woman, and child with a pure heart. That's, in a sense, telling us that we are all whirlpools of the same river uh, because the Holy Spirit is God and is Jesus. Um, or when John says this or talks about Jesus and God um, as the Logos. Uh, logos is a Greek word that we translate it as word, but it also means thought, mental processes. So to call Jesus and therefore God the Logos, you are saying that God is a mental entity, uh, which is in a sense <laughs> exactly what analytic idealism puts forward. Um, there is more. I mean, we can get into the details, but uh, um, the first book of the Bible is an amazingly specific and accurate description of the birth of uh, metacognition in the human mind when we not only experienced nakedness but we then knew that we were naked that's metacognition and you get that when you take a bite from the fruit of the tree of knowledge i mean how could it be more clear <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, I'll leave it at that. No, I'm into that. So, thank you, Bernardo. And uh, I also want to ask you. So, throughout your work, you sort of you note the close relationship between the brain and the mind, as we're heading at. But you're quite vigilant to avoid collapsing one into the other and making the kind of crude causal uh, inference that many people make that it just comes from the brain. Can you describe that a bit more and why that is so important? We tend to think in dualistic terms, materialists especially. They really have a dualist way of thinking. That's what I've noticed over the years. Um, so when I say that it's all mind, um, I usually get the following attempt at a rebuttal. People say, well, if I stick your arm with a needle, you feel pain. If you drink a glass of wine, something changes in your mind. So obviously, the causal chain goes from material processes to mental processes. Ergo, mental processes are caused by material processes. 
that's an entirely dualistic uh, way of thinking. Because if you heard what I'm saying, what I'm saying is that everything is actually mental. And what we call matter are what certain mental processes look like from a given perspective. So there is no needle. The needle is what the transpersonal mental process out there looks like when you observe it. So that the needle causes pain only means that there is one mental process outside of you that is impinging on your internal mental processes. And that different mental processes impinge causally on one another is trivial. Your thoughts impinge on your emotions. Your emotions impinge on your thoughts. You can feel very bad emotions because you had certain thoughts. And the other way around, you think happy thoughts, you feel better. So mental processes causally affect one another all the time. It's trivial. It, it's, it's nature's given. We know that that happens. So when a needle sticks you in the arm, that's a transpersonal mental process uh, uh, having a causal effect on your personal mental processes. When you drink a glass of wine, that glass of wine is what a transpersonal mental process looks like. And once you ingest it, you're bringing the causal influence of that mental process into your own whirlpool. And that will have an effect on the dynamic, inner dynamics of the whirlpool. Mm. So that's what you have to remember, that for an idealist, matter does not have standalone existence. Matter is an image, an appearance. It's what underlying mental processes look like. And therefore, if a surgeon takes a scalpel to your, to your brain, something very dramatic will happen inside <laughs> you because that scalpel is what a certain mental process looks like. And if you take it into your whirlpool, it may even disrupt the whirlpool so much uh, that it will dissolve the whirlpool. You think of it as a big ripple coming down the river and then it impinges on a whirlpool and dissolves the whirlpool. Yeah, no, that can happen, sure. <laughs> and uh, you also, if I recall correctly, uh, talk about how the brain works as a knot of the mind. Can you des describe that a little bit and how that sort of plays out? These are different metaphors for the same thing. Yeah. And, and I understand you that you're not taking me down the road of saying these same things in technical, unambiguous, precise terms, um, because it's probably not going to be accessible for a whole bunch of people. So I understand that. So the not metaphor is an alternative uh, to the whirlpool metaphor. Um, think of the original mental processes in this universal mind, the mind that underlies all nature, this instinctive mind. Um, think of them as threads uh, just like our thoughts tend to be threads you have one thought leads to another that um, leads to a memory which leads to another thought it's a thread of cognitive associations and we think along these threads so you can picture this universal mind's uh, mental activity as these threads now imagine that instead of linear threads uh, that these threads start turning in upon themselves. Uh, it's like you have a thought that leads to a memory um, that leads to an emotion, which leads you back to the original thought, which leads to the memory and leads to the emotion and leads you back to the original thought. <laughs> we all experience this. We all loop. These are thought loops. Usually they are detrimental. They, they are associated with addiction, with uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, with... Um, uh, even less pathological things when we are brooding 
we fall into these thought loops. So we all have experience of what these these loops of you know, of chains of associations feel like. Now, if you think of all of those threads of the universal mind uh, forming these loops and getting tied together and folding in upon themselves, you get a very complex Gordian knot of mental associations that instead of flowing into the vast universe of mentation out there, um, become self-focused because all of those threads sort of fold in upon themselves, forming this ever tighter and tighter knot. That's the human mind. That's that's the mind of, of a living animal or a living entity that seems to be separate from the rest of what's going on in mind because it has become so self-focused because of all these you know, this knots of uh, cognitive associations that form. Um, we are not born quite like that. There is a certain knotness to, to our <laughs> being born already, uh, but usually it takes exposure to the culture for a few years for that knot to really form. You know, you, it doesn't form before you are seven years old. Um, before that age, you are the world. Now, you're not an observant, uh, an observer of the world and the world is separate from you. No, you are the world because it's entirely natural for us to think like that prior to culture. Uh, let me give you an example. When we have different thoughts in the course of a day, we don't think of those thoughts as part of the world. They are ours, our thoughts. We go from A to B to C to D to D to, to E to F, all different thoughts. We sort of traverse an avenue of thoughts, but we consider those ours. They're not out there. They are my thoughts. But if I'm walking down a street and I see the houses and the trees pass by, those houses and those trees are also my mental experiences. I am having the experience of walking down the street. And these houses and trees and cars pass by. But I don't see them as mine. I don't see them as me. I see them as out there. So why the distinction? You could also say, well, I traverse my thoughts just as I traverse the street. Or alternatively, if the thoughts are part of me, so is the street. But we make this distinction. In one case, it's us. In the other case, it's not. A child doesn't do that. For the child, going down the street is them, just like going down the avenue of a certain thought process. It's all mental activity, different types, but it's all mental activity. So if it's them in one case, it's them in the other case too. It takes culture to make that split. Certain experiences are not yours. Other ones are. And the ones that are yours, we tend to put down. Um, If a child wakes up in the middle of the night scared because the child has had a dream, um, we will say that incredibly damaging but sweet sounding thing. We say, don't worry, sweetheart. It was just a dream. It's like your inner life doesn't count. Mm -hmm. The only thing that counts is what culture tells you is out there and it's not you. That's the only thing that that matters. Your dreams don't matter. It's a very short step to your emotions don't matter. 
your 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 suffering doesn't matter and at the end you're going to die anyway and all of your insights are going to be lost anyway so who cares right <laughs> and that's true you know <laughs> and so actually i don't want to burden you or a listeners with metaphor after metaphor but i think they're fantastic and most clarifying so i just want to ask you a, a little bit about a mutually facing mirrors as I think you describe, and uh, some of the empirical support for the metaphors that you uh, describe in the book. So that's the part about meta-consciousness. And let me try, I'll repeat the distinction between consciousness and meta-consciousness. Pure consciousness means that you have experience. Meta-consciousness means that in addition to having experience, you know that you have experience. This knowing that you have experience is an internal re-representation of mental contents. So in addition to the pain, when you report to someone, I am in pain, you re-represented that pain. Because now not only do you experience having the pain, now you experience knowing that you have the pain and therefore you can report it to your doctor, to the nurse, to your partner, whoever. Um, and this is very important because meta-consciousness is recursive. You can apply it to itself again and again. So not only do you know that you're experiencing something, you know that you know that you're experiencing something. And you know that you know that you know that you're experiencing something. And you can go like this forever. We call this attention, not flow. Flow is a different kind of attention. Flow is when you lose that altogether and you sort of flow with the experience. But um, laborious attention, like when the teacher tells the kid at school, pay attention. <laughs> That's what you do. You, you know that you know that you know that you are reading that thing. And sometimes all of these degrees of recursion, this knowing that you know that you know, can distract you from the actual thing. You lose sight of the thing. Pupils at school know that all the time. Try to pay attention explicitly and you will realize that you no longer know what you're reading because you're so busy with the process of paying attention that, uh, that you lose uh, sight of the origin of the thing. Um, this recursive process of re-representation or recursive metacognition is like two mirrors face facing each other. They reflect each other's image ad infinitum, and we call the effect the infinite, the infinity mirror. I think uh, it's what's called. It's like a camera filming its own images on a monitor. Uh, it goes down forever, um, and that has the effect of uh, focusing consciousness so much um, to, to to such a degree that it obfuscates everything else that is not part of that recursive process. It's the pupil at school. If you focus so much on trying to pay attention, you, you no longer know what's happening around you. You no longer know even the thing that you're trying to pay attention to. Everything becomes obfuscated by this, this re-representation, this recursive re-representation process, like two mirrors facing each other. And unfortunately, that's what happens to all of us all the time. We are experiencing a whole bunch of things that we don't know that we are experiencing because we are 
so focused on a subset of it. We put that subset of it under the microscope of these recursive re-representations and that obfuscates everything else. We lose sight of nuance, of subtlety. We no longer recognize the assumptions that we are automatically making and may be completely wrong. Um, it's like not seeing the stars at noon. Um, if you are a photographer, a sky photographer, you will know this from experience. Um, the stars are all visible at noon, actually the planets as well. If you had a good camera with enough zoom capability, you can zoom into Saturn in a sunny day at noon and you see it clearly. It is right there against a light blue background. You can see the moons of Jupiter at noon mm -hmm. if you had a good camera. Um, therefore, the photons from Jupiter's moons and Saturn, they are all coming through. They're not being lost. They're not being filtered out by the atmosphere. They are coming through and they are hitting your retina if you just look at the right place. But you will not be able to tell yourself, I'm seeing Saturn, because your vision is obfuscated by the glare of the atmosphere. Obfuscation renders you practically or effectively blind to the entire universe around you at mm -hmm. noon. And so that's a metaphor. The exact same thing is happening to you right now when it comes to your own mental universe. There is a bottomless mental universe in you, um, but you are dissociated from a lot of it. And the rest of it, you can't see just for the same reason that you can't see the skies at noon. Your metacognition, you're paying attention to the things that the narrative in your mind tells you are the things that matter. You're paying attention, uh, straining to pay attention to the things that matter, uh, creates a mental glare that obfuscates all the subtlety, all the nuance that's going on in that immense inner mental environment that, that is you. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Thank you, Bernardo. And I think that's incredibly helpful <clears throat> for people even to understand mystics and where mystics are coming from. Whereas I think with the kind of strict crude dualism we have nowadays, we think that that's just a kind of form of romanticism. It's all, again, it's putting down their emotions, their experiences. So it's most helpful. Thanks for that, Bernardo. And um, I want to ask, you make another Another wonderful nuanced point about truth, uh, if I recall right, and move away from a cruder, more propositional understanding of truth that we've inherited and um, how we might actually discern this collective reality alongside our, and intertwine with our personal realities. Can, can we talk a bit about truth as you understand it and how that sort of lays itself out there? Yeah. We have in the West today, it's changing, but it's still there, it's still mainstream, um, a particular theory of truth. Uh, and that's the correspondence theory of truth. And it goes as, as follows. Any statement you make, a mental statement, is true or isn't true, depending on whether there is something outside mind that corresponds to that statement. So if you say, that volcano is erupting, that's a mental statement, it's an assertion that your mind makes, that assertion will either be true or not, depending on whether that volcano outside of mind is erupting or not. 
that's the correspondence theory of truth. A mental content uh, is either true or false, depending on whether it corresponds or not to a non-mental content. That's an incredibly naive view of things because there are no such things as non-mental contents. And if they did exist, things would be effectively as if they didn't because we cannot access anything that is not mental. Uh, the non-mental quality of that volcano is an abstraction of a materialist metaphysi metaphysics um, because the volcano we see, the volcano we hear, the volcano whose burns we feel is a mental volcano. It looks like something, it feels like something. Um, so it's not outside mind. So what we have to do is to adopt a less naive theory of truth, which is based on some form of mental consensus. Um, a statement of your personal mind is true or not true, depending on the level of consensus around that statement. So if 10 people are next to you and you say that volcano is erupting, if those 10 people tell you, yes, we too are experiencing now an erupting volcano, then your assertion is true. Um, if not, then your experience is still true. You may be hallucinating. You may be daydreaming, you may be hallucinating, you may be schizophrenic. And that volcano's eruption is true to you insofar as it is being experienced by you. So it is true as an experience. An experience is not nothing. No, there is a difference between having the hallucination and not having the hallucination. The hallucination is not nothing. It exists as such, as a mental content. But of course, if we would say that everything is true if it is experienced by one person, then the next person to declare himself the second come of the Messiah, we will have to follow that person because it's true for him or her, right? <laughs> and of course, that's not sustainable. So what we have to do is understand that truth or falsity is a consensus determination. And yes, that makes things tricky because there are such things as collective delusions induced by a certain narrative of what's going on. And some of our cherished truths may indeed be of that kind. They may not correspond to truly transpersonal mental processes in nature out there. They may be cultural artifacts, uh, psychological uh, artifacts. So uh, this less naive theory of truth calls for a level of caution regard, regarding what we consider true um, that isn't uh, the case for the very naive correspondence theory of truth. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Thank you, Bernardo. <clears throat> I want to ask you a, a little bit about, um, you make the nuance point again, I think that there are indeed um, clear limits between metaphors and analogies in reality and uh, encourage us not to get over a kind of um, zealous with our use of metaphors and analogies and sort of again make them, them the map instead of reality. Can you describe that a bit and why that's important? The notion of a literal explanation or a literal description is fairly recent. It's a Western thing. Um, before that, all humans thought analogically. They thought through analogy. So analogy is when you say time is a river or a metaphor. 
is when you say time is a river. Uh, you don't mean that time is literally a river. If you had said time is a river 2,000 years ago, nobody would have this weird thought that you're saying that time actually is a river made of water flowing. That, that's not the point. The point is there is something about time that is the same uh, about the river. And you don't say what that is. That's analogical thinking. You do not need to say what the commonality is. You let it to the, you leave it to the intuition of the other person. If you can see it, the other person probably can see it too. So the metaphor points at something without specifying what it is. Time is a river. What do you mean by that? Well, if I have to say it literally, I would be able to say it. Both flow. When I say time is a river, what I'm saying is time flows just as the river flows. In this particular case, I happen to have the concept that specifies the commonality, flow. But our conceptual dictionary is limited. Language is limited. Conceptual reasoning is limited. The intellect is 30,000 years old. It was born yesterday. It's a baby. Um, humans exist in anatomically modern form for about 200,000 years. So even within the human timeline, the intellect is a child. Um, and our conceptual dictionary is extraordinarily limited because language evolved for us to tell the others where the tiger is hiding, tell the others where the fruit lies, that, uh, the, the tree lies that have the good, produces the, the, the good fruit. Um, language was created for banal operational purposes. It was never meant to describe the deepest underlying truths of nature and reality, the underlying truths of being. There is no, we don't have the concepts for that. Why should we? We've been walking around this rock for 30,000 years with, as intellectually thinking, as symbolically thinking creatures. Um, and that is the important point. For most of the things that matter, all I can do is to say time's a river because I don't have the concept that applies. I don't have flow. So I can't say literally that time flows. All I can say is appeal to an analogy such that the other person can recognize what I mean without there having to be a concept, part of a shared dictionary that can literally point at it. And, and, and that's the tragedy because in our Western culture, in its immense naivete and inability to be self-critical, we think today that everything that exists and matters can be described literally. We think that everything of any salience, of any significance, can be captured within the set of concepts in our dictionary. This is so abysmally naive that it hurts. Um, of course, we don't have yet the concept, the shared conceptual dictionary to specify all the things that are salient, all the things that matter to life. Uh, literally, we don't have. Mm. All we can do is to say, time's a river, because we don't have the concept, we don't have the flow. 
And guess what? That's exactly what religious mythology does. Because we don't have the conceptual dictionary to refer literally to the ground of being, to, to what really, really, really at root level is going on. We have to say that analogically, metaphorically. And when the Jews wrote the Old Testament, the Jews in exile in Babylon wrote the Old Testament two and a half thousand years ago, it would never have occurred to them that when they said time is a river, that anybody would have the thought that it's an actual river of water flowing. In a, of course not. Nobody, nobody thought like that. Therefore, nobody would write like that. When they, when they said time to river, river, they counted on your intuition to understand that what is being hinted at, it's something we don't have the words for. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Thanks, Bernardo. I know uh, one retort perhaps to that might be from what Rupert Sheldrake calls the science of the gaps, whereby people say, oh, well, we haven't had the kind of uh, language to describe this phenomena in the past, but one day science will answer all the questions, but it sort of assumes built into that kind of philosophy that all questions are scientific in that mode of questioning. Um, would you like to speak to that and some of the yeah, friction? It's also incredibly naive that uh, this kind of idea is rooted in a profound lack of understanding of what the scientific method is and entails. Science is the study of nature's behavior not of what nature is. Science can say very, very little. And what it can say, it it can only say by implication. It cannot say directly. Um, Science can say very little about what nature is because the methods of science do not give us direct insight into being. They only give us direct insight into behavior. Um, To be more specific, The scientific method is based on experimentation. You set up an experiment, you control the conditions of the experiment, and then you record the result. What is happening there? Well, what is happening is that when you set up the experience, you're posing a question to nature. And nature answers that to you in the form of the experimental result by behaving in a certain way. The answer to an experiment is always a behavior of nature. In other words, it's something nature does in response to your experimental conditions. So I used to work at CERN in Switzerland. So when we collide protons at a very high number of tera-electron volts with each other, uh, we are posing a question to nature. And what? how do you get the answer? Well, we get the answer because in response to that collision of protons that we force, um, nature behaves in a certain way in response to the collision. So nature behaves by producing a whole number of subatomic particles that we detect with our calorimeters and our trackers and all that, and reconstruct all that. And we say, oh, there was a Higgs boson there. But we do that because nature has done something that we then measured. In other words, what we measure is what nature does. It's nature's behavior. Now, what is a scientific theory? A scientific theory is a model to predict nature's behavior. That's all there is to it. And as a tool to make that prediction, we play a little game. We pretend that nature is made in this or that way. 
And if by pretending that our predictive model gives the right answers, makes the right predictions, uh, then we can continue pretending that that's what nature is. But it's a game of pretend. Let me give you concrete examples. Uh, when Newton said that there is gravity, there is this invisible force that acts instantaneously at a distance between bodies, pulling them to one another, that's a pretend. We pretend that there is this invisible force. Now, at the time, this was absurd. It took the French 50 years to stop laughing of Newton and the invisible forces <laughs> acting instantaneously at the distance. What have you smoked? <laughs> Are you on drugs? <laughs> um, but of course, after those 50 years, science embraced that. There is gravity. And that went along until Einstein. And then Einstein came around and said, nonsense. Of course, there isn't such an invisible force acting at a distance. What is really going on is that the fabric of space-time is bending and twisting. Well, too bad it's invisible too. So, so now that's what nature is. Well, until Carlo Rovelli came along and the loop quantum gravity people, and they're saying, no, 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 no. It's not the fabric of space-time. Malarkey, that's nonsense. Time, it doesn't even exist fundamentally. It's created by quantum level uh, processes at the micro microscopic scale. So you see, these are what we call convenient fictions. We pretend that there is such an invisible force. We pretend that there is a malleable fabric of space-time. We pretend that there is the Higgs boson. We never measured one. What we measure is what the Higgs boson decays into. And even those are not really particles, they are bumps on histograms. So all of these things that science may say, the world is made that way, these are convenient fictions. And their only purpose is to predict the behavior of nature. In other words, nature behaves as if there were an invisible force. Nature behaves as if there were a little particle called the Higgs boson. And that's all there is to it. And that's all we need. That's all we need. We need to find the convenient fictions that are such that is as if those fictions were true. Nature behaves in a way that, that is as if those fictions were true. That's all there is to science. And if the predictions are correct, your theory is good. If your predictions are not correct, your theory is bad. But even in the good theories, there are these convenient fictions and they are just that. They are just convenient fictions. We cannot forget that that's what these things are. Um, give you another example. Sorry, I'm talking too much, but this is rich territory. Um, <laughs> you may be a seven-year-old kid and be world champion in a computer game. Now, I'm an old-fashioned guy, and I'm from the Atari 2600 generation. And there was this game called Hero uh, for the Atari 2600, in which you are a guy with a little helicopter backpack, and you have a laser gun, and you go down a dark cave, shooting at things and then if you touch a wall that is glowing then you die and if you touch a spider you die and if you kill the bat then you score points so a seven year year old kid can be world champion playing that game does that mean and in other words the kid can predict exactly what will happen in the game and react accordingly the kid will know where to go, which wall to touch and not to touch, what to kill and what not to kill, where to be, where not to be. Um, the kid's convenient fiction is that there is a little man with a helicopter backpack going down a dark cave inside the television. 
because everything happens as if that were true. And you can win the bloody game. You can predict what the game would do and win the bloody game by adopting this convenient fiction that there is an actual little man with an actual helicopter, a little backpack and a laser gun going down a dark cave inside your television. So everything works as if that were true. That's science. If you have a convenient fiction that you can apply and make correct predictions and win the game, then you're, you're, you win the Nobel Prize. Yeah. And, and on the basis of that, we can develop technology. We can build computers, cell phones, develop drugs, because everything works, insofar as we can determine, everything works as if that convenient fiction were true. You can be a world champion playing hero by adopting that convenient fiction, M even more. You must adopt that convenient fiction, because if you try to stick to what is really going on, gazillions of microscopic switches open and closing inside silicon chips, that's what's actually going on. That's the reality of the game software and hardware. If you're going to try to play the game by being aware of what is actually going on, you're not going to win. You need a convenient fiction. That's what science and technology are all about. Does that mean that we actually know what's going on, what nature is? No. And for exactly the same reason that the seven-year-old kid world champion in a computer game does not have a clue what is actually going on. What is all the hardware and software doing? Uh, uh, inside the console and you don't need or want to know that all you want to have is a convenient fiction to predict nature's behavior that's what's actually going on and therefore to say that science will lead us to all the answers that matter that science will lead us to know understanding all the hardware and software underneath no science is one very important method to knowledge it's certainly not an exhaustive method. There are things that it cannot fundamentally answer, like what things are. Science works with convenient fictions in order to predict behavior. It cannot give you direct insight into what things are. For that, we need philosophy. For that, we need introspection, maybe religion. Ooh, excellent. Thank you, Bernardo. So I just want to ask you one more question, if I may, about that early book. Um, about materialism, why it's baloney. <laughs> so I, I think this is most important and a, a wonderful um, input from your work. Uh, so you show, uh, it's obvious if you read the literature, but modern materialism has a real problem with free will and a, a forming a coherent understanding, I think, of free will. Can you help us understand this kind of quality of free will and how this even ties in with our limitations and why that's important? I think our understanding of free will is, is faulty, may even be incoherent. Um, when we say, I have free will, we don't mean that our choices are random, purely random. That's not what we mean by free will, that you toss a coin every time you make a choice. It doesn't seem right, right? But if we say that our choices are determined, well, that's also not free will. Because if they are determined, then it's not a choice. So it seems to require semantic space in between randomness and determinism. The problem is there is no such semantic space. Things are either random or they are determined. So what do we really mean by free will? What we mean is that our choices are determined. 
but they are, de they are determined by my tastes, by my preferences, by my personal history, by my goals, by my purposes, by my value judgments. In other words, choices are determined, but they are determined by me, by what I identify myself with. They are determined by the processes that I take to be me. They are not random, but they are not determined by anything that I don't identify with. That's what we mean. Now, the problem is that not one of us, not even the hardest core materialist on this planet, sincerely feels in their heart of hearts that they are the electrochemical activity in their neurons. Because from their own first-person perspective, that electrochemical activity is an abstraction. You are not experiencing electrochemical activity. You're experiencing your preferences, your dispositions. You're experiencing your fears, your tastes, your likes, your dislikes. That's what you identify with because that's what you're directly acquainted with. Neurons firing inside your head is an abstraction. It's a, it's a theoretical abstraction. Yes, one could crack your head open, put a mirror on top, and look, those are your neurons firing. <laughs> but you would still not identify with that because they are then perceived but not felt. You don't feel that, is, that it is the electrical activity in your neurons that determines your choices. That's not what you feel. You feel that your choices are determined by what you feel. By, your, by the tastes that you feel, by the preferences that you feel, by the goals that you feel, not by electrochemical activity. Now, from that perspective, analytic idealism would grant, would grant you free will uh, because it, would, it, say, it says that um, the electrochemical activity of your brain is just a representation of your dispositions, your tastes, your preferences, your disposition, states, and preferences, these are the things in themselves. This is, what's, this is what really exists. It's your experience. That's what really exists. The electrochemical activity in your brain is a, rep it's a representation of, that, of those experiences. In other words, it's what those experiences look like from an, an external perspective. Therefore, your choices are determined by the thing in itself, by your tastes, by your dispositions, by your goals, this is what's actually determining your choices. Brain activity is not determining it. Brain activity is just what these things look like from an outside perspective. Ergo, you do have free will from that perspective, in that sense. Now, if you dig deeper, can, are you free to choose your tastes, your dispositions, uh, your, your goals, your preferences? Schopenhauer, Arthur Schopenhauer, a famous Western philosopher from the early 19th century, would say, no, you are free to, you are free to act according to your, to your will, but you are not free to will your will. Because if you were, we would all be infinitely happy. Whatever the situation I have in my life right now, I would choose to want exactly that above all else. So if I am serving a life sentence in solitary confinement, I would choose that that's exactly what I want. And I would be in a sort of cathartic state throughout my life sentence. 
everybody would be infinitely happy. Is that what's happening? No, we don't get to choose our goals, our tastes, our dispositions, our likes and dislikes, our fears, our wants. We are willed. And then we are free to act according to that will, but we are not free to will what we will. So we have free will in the sense that we can act according to our will, but that will is itself not free. Um, and that is very, very good. Because if we were free to will our will, life would be absolutely meaningless. There would be no impetus that is authentic, that is natural, that it's coming from the foundation level of nature, something that nature wants to express through you. Um, everything would be banal because we would just choose what to will according to convenience. It would be a universe of pure banality, a catastrophic cosmic situation. Um, so what actually happens is that nature wills through us. And that's exactly how I think, personally, things should be. Um, without it, there would be no such a thing as a life of service. Without it, there would be no goal, no meaning, no telos. Um, there would be no sacrifice in the original meaning of the word. To sacrifice is to make sacred. None of that would exist. There would be no such a thing as the will of God or the will of nature, which is the term I tend to use. Mm. Thanks for that, Bernardo. And uh, yeah, we've only really just touched the surface of your wonderful work. And there's many different books that I've enjoyed that I would most highly commend to people. So uh, if they want to take it from there, then I'd, I'd recommend read those. So just um, to close for today, Bernardo, and again, I most appreciate your time. It's been fantastic. So is there anything else that you're working on now at the moment or that you still feel the passion to get involved with in the future? I am. Uh, most of my work now is as uh, the director of Essentia Foundation, which is a nonprofit that promotes uh, metaphysical idealism or you know, idealism in its many forms. The notion that uh, reality is essentially mental, not in your mind alone, not in my mind alone, but mental in essence. It's made of transpersonal mental processes out there that look to us like what we call matter uh, once they are observed. So that's the, the main line of my daily activities. Um, in parallel, I have been gestating a new book, a new book about uh, the Western mind. Um, I think mainstream materialism has done such a degree of damage to um, the Western tradition, which precedes it by thousands of years. And, and materialism is, is a more or less modern phenomenon. Some people say, well, materialism started with Democritus. No, they don't understand what Democritus meant. Dem Democritus didn't mean that there were these things fundamentally outside and independent of mind. That's not Democritus's idea, uh, uh, materialism. Materialism, modern materialism is a post-enlightenment thing. Even the original enlightenment uh, uh, members People like uh, um, uh, Denis Diderot, one of the two authors of La Encyclopédie, one of the founding documents of the Enlightenment. He's on record saying materialism doesn't quite work, but we need it as a weapon against the church. Uh, it was some point in the 19th century that everything literally went to hell. We lost sight of the ball completely. 
and modern materialism was born. So it's about two, two centuries old, uh, and it, it 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 may be what is mainstream now, but the Western tradition is much older, goes much deeper, has a lot more depth and subtlety and nuance, and um, I want to write a book about that and about my personal relationship with the Western tradition and all the things we've lost. We've lost, for instance, sorry, I'm speaking too much, but just to give you an idea um, of what is playing in my mind right now, what I consider to be important right now, the whole understanding in the West today about well-being is based on this notion that your life is about you and my life is about me. This is ridiculous. This is horrendous. How did this happen to the Western tradition? We have always known that our lives are not about us, that life is sacrificial. Life is, a, is, an, is an endeavor of service, that it's not about us. And it's precisely because that that it's meaningful. And it's precisely because of that that it has depth and meaning and feels good. But now we say that, well, my life is about me. Therefore, I must be happy. That's the only possible goal in life is that you be happy because your life's about you. But of course, nature makes it impossible. We can never be happy all the time. Mm-hmm. Happiness will always be ephemeral. It comes and goes very quickly. It escapes through our fingers. And therefore, we are all unhappy mm-hmm. because we should be happy because life is about us, but we can't be happy. Oh, it's a disaster. <laughs> and then the whole industry of self-help you know, it, it, it's a shit show, sorry about the word, but we've turned the, the depth of the Western tradition into a shit show of banality and egocentrism. It's tragic, and I feel compelled to write about that. Mm. That's what I'm doing. Fantastic. I must look forward to it, Bernardo, and uh, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much, and God bless you. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. No!